being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong so the first person he meets is a man called roger moore basically roger moore on the surface is a gun dealer he's known on the gun show circuit and he splits his time between living in south florida and arkansas but there's so much more to Roger Moore, like too much more. More on Roger Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think when I was typing that, that <laughs> <laughs> also correct me. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, there's too, there's actually too much. Like, for instance, I know Jesse's trying to do is how to FOIA out on him since like 2016, and there's hundreds of thousands of pages, and he's yet to receive any of them. And I've had a FOIA out on him and out of nowhere, they, they canceled it. Like they, <laughs> they, they just won't give it up. And then I'll go into it a little bit, I think more later, but the extent to which this guy has been protected um, is insane. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the attorneys in the Nichols, or not the attorney, but a person that worked in the Nichols, um defense team recently told me like we would try to go out there and talk to roger moore and investigate what was going on with roger moore and and we were being shut down all over the place like he said roger moore is clearly protected he was being protected by um, local authorities and by the fbi so so there's a lot more to roger moore than just some like cranky gun dealer um yeah yeah no like hundreds of thousands of pages of documents sure sounds like a very ubiquitous sort of informant or something yeah oh oh yeah yeah and yeah and that spans and i mean that's even informant is like that's like his retirement hobby for that it's even weirder um yeah i do a little informing in my in my retirement (laughs) That's kind of, I mean, it's kind of what it seems like because what came before was, yeah, even crazier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I just got to relax a little. So I'm going <laughs> to go set people up and instigate plots a little. So more along with Jack Oliphant is one of the main focuses of the second book manuscript, um, much of which is written, although there's still a lot of research and rewriting I have to do because these two guys, Roger Moore and Oliphant, are really um, difficult. But but I wasn't ready in aberration to go. By the time I had to give the manuscript over, the final manuscript for aberration, I was already deep into Moore and Oliphant, but there was no time to work them in and it also the book was pushing the limit that they would even allow me <laughs> so yeah so that's it wasn't that i was trying to avoid them or cover up for them or protect them it was the like the, the the enormity of them both is such that i couldn't fit it in and fit it in quickly um so like along with the publicly available stuff about more i'm kind of going half reading from my notes and, and talking Mm-hmm. Talking on my ass, but um, <laughs> uh, also okay. Along with the publicly available stuff about more, that I have what is new info and documents given to me by author and investigator Sherry Seymour, who wrote 
she wrote a book called Committee of the States, which was about uh, the right um, wing posse comitatus type <clears throat> Freeman groups. But she also wrote a book um, about the octopus, about Castellero stuff. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. The book is good. Because, yeah, there's only so many books about the octopus and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I think there's only yeah, a couple that I know of. But so she gave me, so she wrote, so Sherry Seymour, she wrote Committee of the States and The Last Circle, Danny Castellero's Investigation into the Octopus and the Promise Software Scandal. It's a long title. Um, that one, the second one, is put out by Trying Day. But what had happened was that Seymour was also, she was a, kind of a journalist, but most more an investigator. And she was hired by a private client after the Oklahoma City bombing to do an investigation, a wealthy client, who I don't know the name of. She, I was never given that who hired her, but she generated boxes of material. And this was right in the beginning, like after the bombing. And mm. she she gave me all those boxes. So some of the stuff on more is from her. Um, but she gave me a lot of really good stuff too. Um, but I was also provided recently, like right before kind of we decided we were going to do this, you and I, mm. I would had unexpectedly been provided with a shit ton of new stuff <laughs> from from the Nichols team. And a lot of that is on more because they were like hot on more. They uh, it didn't get them very far, but they they tried. Um, but there's some stuff in there. Can I ask you a like a general question? Oh yeah, yeah. So course, yeah. with the uh, Terry Nichols defense and the McVeigh defense, and they sort of each zeroed in on different things. Did the Nichols? Is there a reason why the Nichols defense in particular zeroed in on Roger Moore over the McVeigh team defense? Well, that yeah, that's a good question, and the best this is the best I think I can answer without really sitting and starting to dig up old memos. But mm-hmm. McVeigh, for one, did not want them going after more. He, mm. for as far as McVeigh's team, he was scared to talk about more. Like, and that comes out in a few like handwritten notes he passes his defense. It also in conversations with his biographers later the official biography even though that wasn't published in the book i have read all their transcripts and notes like McVeigh was very reluctant to and i don't know what the Mm. i guess i could speculate as to that there could be a few reasons for that but they uh they also kept they did McVeigh's defense did try to make an effort to get material about more from the Department of Justice and the FBI during dis- discovery, and they were they kept being given like basically nothing. And by the time they were given anything, or a lot, or or like much on more, it was already like coming up to trial. There was, and mm-hmm. and for the nickel and for McVeigh's defense, the theory they settled on, even though a lot of time was spent looking into conspiracy, and they generated a lot of great material for us, like you and I, for people that came later. Their working defense um, wasn't going to be about pointing fingers at other people. It was going to be just poking holes in the mm. case, factual case against McVeigh, which actually 
probably could have been done much better but the, the, you know that I think my book goes into some of the like conundrums of the May defense team with with Nichols um, they didn't have those restrictions and Nichols had no problem in fact Nichols said mm-hmm. like McVe- or more gave us explosives you know it, it was a matter of proving it and so they made more of an effort and I think possibly had they weren't so um, plagued with internal problems and they, so they did try to do make headway on more but again like I was recently told they were shut down every time like they could get close um they they would be somehow shut down by the FBI um and local authorities like in Arkansas interesting and that I don't have more than that like basically that's all I was told um but it's something it's something that um maybe you know I'll be able to continue discussing with this person I know he had me write a list of questions for Nichols and so maybe someday Nichols will answer those. I had one correspondence with Nichols, but it never really picked up. Like it was really early on, and so I was even mm. more bumbling than I am. So I was I didn't know how to pursue that. But um, there's not much he's gonna say to me, anyways. Like if he's yeah. gonna say something to somebody, it's gonna be somebody that's not me. Um, someone that can do something really. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that I hope. I mean, I hope that kind of answers the question. No, that definitely does. And like, no, that's excellent. They those two teams. Like, I think I think I mentioned it quickly in my book, but they there was in the beginning they kind of would share information, but it, it got to be, there were so many leaks in the Gray's defense team, like just endemic, that they the Nichols team were like, we're not working with them anymore just any mm-hmm. it's kind of like some people you might you might know people like this like you just can't tell them anything <laughs> but unless you expect it to get broadcast kind of a thing yeah it was kind of like that with nickels and <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so i'm just gonna try to do a quick rundown and actually this morning um, spoke to Boltzmann a little bit and uh I know he's really hot on the more stuff and and uh so I I did promise him I would talk about more a little bit more but so I'm gonna do a brief rundown on more and just try to hit some high points although for me that is still probably lengthy but uh and maybe in the future I could do whether with you or Sonos maybe an interview about just more we'll see um, but mm-hmm. so more, more Roger Moore, he has a number of aliases that he uses, um, Bob Miller, Bob Anderson, Bob from Arkansas, there's more. Um, but so he also has variations of his name, um, that he uses as aliases. Well, Bob, Roger Moore, Bob Miller. I don't know where he gets Bob from, but, but he does, um, and Moore has a pretty interesting career. He's born in the 1930s. And uh, by the way, here's his childhood home. I found like where he lived as a kid, like traced, just try to do his whole genealogy because <laughs> I do that too. But uh, 
<laughs> his his childhood home, when I went on Google Maps to look at it, it is the only street on Google Maps that is or is only house on the street that is blurred out. You can see clearly every other house and his house mm-hmm. is, is blurred out. And that might sound like, okay, that's just a coincidence, except for the as I progress, like you'll see is is this it's I don't believe it is a coincidence because of other things I've encountered when when trying to deal with Roger Moore. But uh so in nineteen fifty two he enlists in the Air Force and he stays there till nineteen sixty one and he leaves as an armament sergeant at some point receiving a top secret clearance. After that, he moves around the country um, a bit, doing mysterious things. Um, I have some speculation, but not necessarily prepared right now to talk about that. But he ends up in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1963 and obtains an MBA. And at that time, and possibly prior to that time, he's working for North American Aviation, later Rockwell International. Mm. Um, They had a Tulsa branch. And in some capacity, whatever capacity he was working there required him to have a secret clearance. So McVeigh, as I said, was really cagey when when more would be brought up, like to the point where sometimes McVeigh would not speak out loud and like scribble things on notes and hand them to the defense because he did not want whoever was like listening to the conversations to hear but um and at times he appeared scared to say too much about more um but occasionally he did say stuff about more especially when he found out more was going to testify him he he had a, like a, a conniption fit um and then at that point says like i'll bury more he's like i have so much evidence he's like more gave us explosives so even even mcveigh says that more provided explosives for the bombing so both mcveigh and nichols say this somehow I guess that's not the concern of law enforcement or whatever, or media. Um, so at one point he hand writes this like note to his defense and slides it across the table. And he says that Moore attended a secret school in Southeast. I took that to mean Southeast United States, but later I'm like, well, I don't know. I always did take it to mean Southeast but anyways, he's implying that Moore also, during this time that he's working at Rockwell, attended some secret school. And I think M- M- McVeigh might even be implying that Moore has been backstopped, that some of Moore's records are backstopped. So are you familiar with that term, backstopping? I'm actually not. Okay. Um, there's a couple different definitions of it, but the one I'm using, which is from the counterintelligence terms definitions glossary. Ooh, I gotta get my hand on that. You, you totally do, yeah. And it's a pretty hefty one. Definitely gonna <laughs> grab that. Yeah, there's no way that it won't be useful like, to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in this book, it defines backstopping as, quote, a CIA term for providing appropriate verification and support of cover arrangements for an agent or asset in anticipation of inquiries or other actions which might test the credibility <laughs> of, of his or its cover. So basically, you create fake records to, to show a trail that like kind of covers your legend. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And it and the way that, like, in the the discussions that McVeigh 
is having with his defense at this time, how it comes up and like the timing of it and him like saying like, yeah, he was in Tulsa, but he also attended this school. It, it, it appeared like he was saying more had been backstopped or some of his records. Now, there are rumors like there's always been rumors about more ever since really the beginning and Roger Moore kind of or Roger Moore, Roger Charles talks about in his book um, some of these rumors that have been very hard like there's how many there's so many rumors around more but so many of them are unsubstantiated and a lot of them are not even sourced but the rumors that more trained or taught at the CIA's farm mm. which I believe is in and around Langley um, and, and if that's true like the McVeigh's thing about the Southeast might make sense. Um, or McVeigh could have been talking about some of Moore's anti-Castro Cuban stuff. Yeah. So that's like weird. It's just weird that it's just a, a strange thing where McVeigh, who will usually either just outright lie or be elusive but verbal, like, that he has to do things with more handwritten. But anyways, Moore's in Tulsa working for North American Aviation, who at that point are working on the Apollo contract. And interestingly, although the relationship to Moore, if any is unknown, this exact same time when Moore's at North American Aviation in Tulsa, there's this huge controversy that leads to a Senate investigation about illegal deals to secure defense contracts, insider securities trading, um, the scandal involves top NAA executives, Fidelity, National Bank, and Trust of Oklahoma City, Farmers and Merchants State Bank, which is the largest bank in Oklahoma, and other individuals, including Oklahoma Senator and multimillionaire oil man Robert S. Kerr, some high-rolling Vegas gamblers, wealthy real estate, Miami real estate <laughs> moguls, like, and Bobby Baker, political advisor to Ooh. Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah, that's, yeah. So th there's this huge scandal that happens um, in in North American aviation, Tulsa's North American aviation, right as Moore is there, which may or or I wouldn't rule it out that like <laughs> Moore's right in the middle of this somehow um, because he's a he's a money guy at this point supposedly. But in 1965, Moore moves, he, he leaves Tulsa and he goes, and it's like shortly after the scandal breaks, actually. And he goes to South Florida where he gets into the boat building business. <laughs> and thereby, at least according to what he tells the FBI, which is kind of worthless, but thereby becomes a self-made millionaire in the boat building business. Now, <laughs> the boat building stuff is one of my favorite sections of, of that second book. And one of uh, the one I was just like all about for a couple of years, like I went to South Florida to investigate uh, the boat, some of Moore's boat building connections and look at his properties and, and some other stuff. And to do, and I, as I think I mentioned before, like before I went, I watched every episode of Miami Vice. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. It's I can chalk it up to research, but it was fun. <laughs> I was trying to get a feel for the time, you know. There's an episode for almost every angle of everything you're talking about. <laughs> totally, and 
oh my god there's so so much a line because it's that it, it because he's still doing this in the 80s so it it's aligned with that but um you had mentioned there's an episode about the stinger but at that time i didn't have the singer i didn't yet mm-hmm. have the stinger story so it wasn't it didn't stick out but i intend to go back and watch that one but uh <laughs> but i was worried when i went to miami because on miami vice like everyone wears white pants back in the <laughs> 80s and like, I didn't want I can't wear white it just doesn't work with me I just put ketchup on it or something but so anyways more um starting in the mid-1960s is in South Florida building sweet racing boats for elite quote unquote elite clients and also patrol boats used by the U.S. Navy in Vietnam so now he's got some forget about the elite clients for a second but he's also got these like pretty heavy defense contracts so this is like if 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 there's no inkling before this is the first inkling like more is a little interesting um the business records for the boat building companies and the properties they were located on are themselves a story for another day but i'll say this that despite what he later tells the fbi which is that he sold the boat building businesses and properties in the late 70s. In reality, Moore didn't get rid of all of his major South Florida assets um, until just before he moved to Arkansas in the mid-80s. Moving with the drug trade or something? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, there's like the, the, the period in which he goes to Arkansas, right, the, the, those <laughs> years are is very interesting as well um uh, and given the goings on in south florida like in the mid 80s is probably a good time to get out of dodge anyways but uh at the time Moore moves to south florida he starts these ventures um the speedboat industry itself was in the midst of a major revolution spearheaded by legendary boat racer turned boat builder donald arenal um i don't know if you've ever heard of that guy but Mm -mm. I'm not plugged into the <laughs> speedboat scene, I guess. But yeah, I don't. I don't know anyone like that is, <laughs> except for people that are like like Roger Moore, and he's <laughs> dead. So yeah. Well, anyways, John Travolta played Roger or Don Arenal in a in a really horrible movie that's on Netflix, uh, based on a better book. But but anyways, mm. Donald Arenal has a lot of mob connections and. And also built boats for like George uh, H.W. Bush, built boats <laughs> for uh, customs, built boats for um, Coast Guard. Was really, it was kind of like he he built boats with compartments to smuggle um, drugs in, and at the same time is building boats for the government. And you can argue that it's the same difference, you know, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least they pretend to be on different sides, I guess. I mean, it's not a distinction that has no value, I guess. Yeah. His his like in if you're if you're a boat speedboat person, anyways, Donald Arenal is the guy. Like any kind of sexy cigarette type looking speedboat, that's that's like Don Don Arano started that. But anyways, mm. like more, he has elite clients, including George H. W. Bush. Um 
so Roger Moore pointed out, or, oh, God, I got to stop doing it. Roger Charles, man, I don't want to confuse those two. Like, one's kind of a mentor of mine and one isn't. But Roger Charles points out uh, many, or pointed out, many intriguing but fantastical and never substantiated claims about Moore, as I said. Um, and one of them is that Roger Moore and Donald Aronow are associates.
also the other claims and rumors surrounding Moore and his boat building business uh, are connections to other defense contracts and, and ongoing CIA operations staged out of South Florida, specifically those related to the later Iran-Contra scandal. In these stories, Moore is associated with a number of high-level CIA and Defense Department players, a number of them having previously also been involved in the 1961 Bay of Pigs <laughs> fiasco. I don't know how you want to debacle Bay of Pigs. Resounding victory for the forces of Cuba. <laughs> yeah. I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> in, in, in book two, I do explore like those connections in, in almost disgusting, painstaking detail <laughs> as I do. Can't help it. But, but my research, as I said, involved going to Roger Moore's former properties and talking to former business associates of his, one of which confirmed to me that like, he didn't name the agencies, but he said like, basically Moore, yeah, Moore was building boats for some shadowy operators. Um, he also told me funny stories, like Moore would just go off the handle sometimes and start shooting in, you know, in their warehouses and stuff, just like going berserk <laughs> and shooting at the walls and shit. Um, which is funny because he does that a little bit later as well. So didn't McVeigh do that? <laughs> and McVeigh did McVeigh did that too. Yeah, he did do that, just like surround, <laughs> surround. Um yeah. now with more, more might just be a legitimately grumpy guy. Like if you look at pictures of him as a kid in high school and and even elementary school he's like the only person ever always on the page this with like the scowl the without a smile and this like is continues throughout his, he's just scowly he might really have been shooting where the other two might have had some like mental stuff going on like mm -hmm. from the outside i mean that's kind of a joke and it kind of isn't mm -hmm. but yeah so so yeah, it's just shoots up, just shoots up the joint. Um, and even now, like, I mean, I, this is going just a, a few years back, really. And at this point, Moore's already dead. And this, this guy who's still on the property that Moore had his boat, what used to be partners with, still there. He's, he's still, he was like, you could tell he was very hesitant to like say too much about what Moore was doing in this boat building industry. So I, I get into that. Um, and I think I lay out what I, I, I lay out what I think is a pretty good case in establishing um, some of these ru long rumored connections that never had like anything substantial backing them up. But uh, in the process of doing that, I bring in a lot of other infamous characters, one of which is Donald Arenal. Um, and I also discuss, I use documentation that I do not believe is in circulation at this point, um, or some of it I've had since 2016 and only recently got put into circulation. But I use those to explore Moore's connection to Tom Posey and the civilian military assistance, later civilian material assistance, a group of mercenaries involved in, among other things, the covert war against Nicaragua. 
um, while not widely known when I started writing, but I think has been talked about at this point more. It was turns out was the paymaster and the conduit from the CIA to the civilian material assistance group. Oh, so that's extremely tied in with Iran Contra then. Yes, yes, it is. Ex- yeah, it is extremely. But up until really a couple years ago, that there was nothing substantial tying him. Now mm. there, there absolutely is, and that's I'm going to say largely um, the work of Jesse Trinity that has like pushed pushed that forward. Um, Moore was also involved in harbor mining operations in Nicaragua. Um, oh yeah all that stuff was like <laughs> like legitimately a war crime yeah yeah so so more right so more is not just like a grumpy guy like there's more to more <laughs> more on other stuff about more um he continues to find himself in hot water okay so, so he continues to, this is a little bit later this is like um maybe starting in the 70s continues to find himself in hot water only very briefly of course with various agencies for doing stuff and this goes i'd say from let's say the 80s into the 90s doing stuff like mailing lots of c4 and illegal weapons and ordinance in the united states postal service through the united states postal service selling items including ammo which were quote-unquote stolen (laughs) <laughs> for military bases i'm questioning the term stolen that that's the word that's used in the reports i'm questioning that um yeah to me it's like a redistribution <laughs> kind of a situation but and shooting and 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 here's where and shooting at people randomly while they're driving um <laughs> so so he had a tendency to just like pop off but <laughs> literally but <laughs> Every time an investigation is opened up on more, it's like it'll be like within days it's dropped um, and shut down. Um, and this is like different agencies. Uh, it'll be like, you know, state troopers. It'll be ATF. It'll, it'll be FBI. It'll be our army intelligence. It's, it's like our military intelligence. It's it's not just one agency. It's any agency that tries to even touch more gets shut down. Um, and so Morse always and always ends up, no matter really what he does, he's always free to continue m- mosey on along, do his thing. Um, and his thing, in large part, is like helping to set people up in, in sting operations. Um, sometimes <laughs> even other government informants, which gets to be really like funny, like it's like a bumbling too many cooks in the kitchen scenario where you know Moore sets up another government informant in a sting operation involving stolen military equipment but then that other guy yeah then that guy turns out to be an informant and everything kind of falls to pieces so yeah let me let me ask you this in those cases do you get the impression that that was like an accident or do you like a do you get maybe any hints that like he was trying to burn some some other government informant, you know, or like some mixture thereof. Ooh. Or is it possible to know? 
I there's a it's possible to know and it requires me to have a, a research budget to go out. So I don't like to talk on the phone. Sometimes in, in these kinds of um, situations, it's much better to just talk face to face because yeah. you can get a better. But uh, I mean, that would be how I would set about um, probing that. And actually, that's a good point. Um, I I had stupidly actually just assumed like oh well there wasn't a lot of intelligence sharing at that time between different agencies it wasn't like there was you know like these oh my god i can't believe i'm forgetting what they're called but you know these databases that all the agencies tap into that it wasn't as i understand it quite like that yet it's not like it's pre-9-11 anyways so Mm -hmm. Um, and there was sometimes rivalries between ATF and FBI that, that they appear to sometimes not know what each other are doing, at least at the lower operational levels. Mm-hmm. I guess I can't answer your question. I, I had assumed it was like just no one was communicating and there's targets of opportunity and there's so many informants running around that it's statistically possible that you're bound to try to set one of them off. Mm-hmm. I, if that makes any sense. No, for sure. Cause like, I'm sure a ton of it is like accidental, but then like, yeah, I mean, I'm just taking a shot in the dark, but <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> no, that's, that brings actually that brings I'm, I'm writing it down so i can like ponder this later but first of all your shots and you you've never steered me wrong even when you're just kind of spitballing it ends up being something i should consider anyways oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well and we'll get to that too um <laughs> i was so happy the other day um but yeah okay well let Let's uh let's go on, and I'm probably now in the back of my head going to be thinking about this. Um, <laughs> so more is also involved. If all of that wasn't enough, like even into the early '90s, more was involved in running guns to anti-Castro Cubans, and of course, got McVeigh involved in that as well. Yeah, he's still yeah yeah still involved. It's this old network, right? Like. Yeah, they're, like, getting old at that point. <laughs> yeah. He gets McVeigh involved, which is, um, I, that was, like, in a piece of paper that hadn't been processed as I was writing. In aberration, I say, maybe, I say more was involved in, like, um, the anti-Castro Cubans. But at that point, I had to, like, process a pile of paper you know, because it's pushing the time. I'm supposed to get this book in. Um, and then I think Boltzmann also has now written about it, and I would suggest checking his stuff out for more, like, for more on more as well. Um, I think he explains it a little bit better than I am now. But, um, but yeah, he sucks McVeigh into this. Like, McVeigh makes at least one, possibly a couple more trips with more um to do this gun running to the to the Cubans. So I think we said in the other recording session, but like real Lee Harvey Oswald hours for one thing, of course, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then it's also remarkable because the anti-Castro Cubans, many of them are in fact like terrorists. <laughs> like, I don't think that's like a huge, yeah. like even the U.S. government considers some of the groups to be like terrorist groups. And yeah. it's remarkable that, oh, I don't know, Timothy McVeigh had any contact with any groups that could be considered terrorist groups. Like that is just super, super interesting. Unthinkable. But mm -hmm. but no, definitely interesting. And definitely like I don't know if Cuban's gonna write about it or not. Probably probably much probably go deep on I'm just joking. Um <laughs> I <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't think until like I don't think I've ever seen that mentioned anywhere. It's except my book and now Boltzmann has written and he mentions it and uh mm -hmm. and that's like I no one right that's a big deal nowhere in any McVeigh popular legend or like, like you know MSNBC documentary or whatever are you going to see anything other than maybe McVeigh met some right-wing people at the gun show <laughs> but uh you know but McVeigh didn't want this stuff coming out. And, and that, the reasons for that are like infinitely spec like speculate on those for a while. But, uh, mm -hmm. and, and so this begins to explain partially all of these things I just said, why, when, you know, by the time that Nichols team gets out there, they can't make any headway on finding out anything about Roger Moore. Um, the government, in their indictment against McVeigh and Nichols, claims that Terry Nichols robbed Roger Moore in order to finance the bombing. But it's like, but the only because McVeigh threatened him and his family, like, you got to rob this guy. He's got all these guns and that's going to, you know, and then we're going to sell these guns. That's what the government claimed how how the money was generated to um execute the oklahoma city bombing but in reality there was no robbery not even a staged robbery and now i've got pretty good information like paper to show that more basically nichols shows up at moore's house more hands him a bunch of weapons like hundreds of weapons many of which are unregistered as well as like precious stones and jewels and all kinds of stuff valuables just hands it to them and, and they have a transaction and nickels leaves there is no robbery the government knows this let me ask you real quick there was a transaction so what were they giving roger moore well or is was it like that it was more like a gift how about okay by transaction i mean gotcha. i guess yeah, more like a gift, but there was an exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think that right. That would make no sense. There's no way that Nichols or McVeigh could have like purchased all of these weapons. Like, no, it was a way for Roger Moore to get these things into the hands of McVeigh mm -hmm. without appearing to get his hands dirty. Gotcha. And, and as I said, like now a few times, McVeigh and Nichols have both said that Moore provided them with explosives. So that's cool. So look, Moore is the first person McVeigh meets on his bombing odyssey. And he kind of takes McVeigh under his wing 
and instructs him, instructs him on the ins and outs of the gun show circuit and the ins and outs of the network, that network and um, the network from which his shady web of shady associates just ends up being spun. If, as some, including McVeigh himself, have claimed, indeed, McVeigh was being directed. So some, some including McVeigh, have claimed that McVeigh is being directed during this bombing plot by somebody else. Um, in some stories, this guy is called the major, and it's like McVeigh's handler. It, McVeigh never, in documents, as I've seen, never calls him that, but has said he was being directed. He says this before the bombing even occurs. He tells Terry Nichols, like, I that he's being directed. He tells his first set of attorneys he, that same story. If that is true, I believe he's directed to more or he's possibly directed by more. So you're thinking that possibly Roger Moore could have been the handler that McVeigh referred to? I consider it a possibility, yes. And if it, and if yeah. he's not the handler, he is supposed to be some kind of working associate or partner. He's supposed to be in contact with more. Yeah. And there's a lot of gaps and actually inconsistencies. Like, oh, the FBI is funny. They they invest <laughs> they they question more, but not intensely. And like. You might have like five, maybe different interviews at various times with more and Moore's, I guess you would call her mistress, living mistress, because he also had a, his wife. But, but they, the, between the two of them, like they do not tell a consistent story about their relationship with McVeigh. But the FBI knows this and, and doesn't seem to to care one way or another, and. At one point, Moore actually goes to the FBI. He's like, would you stop investigating me? And they do. And there's like memos <laughs> going to all different states. And it's like, we are shutting down the investigation of Roger Moore. So like, who? I've never heard of that. Like, when I found that I sent them to Jesse trying to. And he's like, holy shit. Like, what? It's like state by state. It's, it's these memos saying, like, we're, we're shutting down this investigation of Moore. I've never heard anyone say to the FBI, please stop investigating me. And then they listen. <laughs> well, yeah. No. And I don't, uh, I don't have notice in front of me right now, but like some of these, it's like out of Little Rock, Arkansas, the, the more invested, because more, they were dispatching the Little Rock, Arkansas FBI uh, field office to investigate more. But those are people more knows anyways and these, and those are also people that are, end up being involved in all the mina types stuff <laughs> right. so they were clued in <laughs> right yeah it's not like they're just stupid but right but i did not prepare notes about those those connections but that's something like in my book yeah, kind of like how in aberration i provide this like mini biography of jolly west i do that for more and i do that for oliphant um so and possibly much longer you know than the than the than west but uh so so yeah but it is something to look at um those connections by the way another thing more also sold was bootleg porn 
<laughs> bootleg porn. And by the way, I just wish I knew more about that because I don't know when it's when, when it says bootleg porn. I'm just not sure what that means. Like, is it homemade actually porn? Is it just copies of videotapes or I don't know. Yeah, I was wondering with Boltzmann, we were talking about that. I was so somewhat curious. And there's talk, and this is, I guess, there's talk of that, you know, it's basically the way that, so Moore has a wife, but he also has a girlfriend, and the girl, and I don't know how you look at this guy, but, like, she's on the gun show circuit with him, and there's talk or rumors, anyways, that, like, this porn venture involved young bucks she would meet on the gun show circuit so if that's you know blackmail or a way of controlling people i don't know that that's a really intriguing Hmm. detail that i just don't know more about again weirdly sounds like leonard lake oh yeah very just weird because basically leonard lake would also like be involved in the production of pornography and then also was way into like the gun show circuit type of stuff and like i don't know like it's just a i'm just throwing it out there i don't know if that's anything or not and what years was that so leonard lake would have been probably doing this around the mid 80s okay okay earlier but yeah Mm -hmm. that's interesting and someday i'm gonna look at that And by the way, did you like that <laughs> silly stinger song that I found? That's <laughs> from yeah, no, some no, no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. I didn't know what that was from, but it was <laughs> yeah, was one funny. of those like GI Joe type cartoons or something. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, I liked I liked a lot of the music. Um, <laughs> I mean, I liked all of it, and some of it was like, oh, this is great. This fits really great. <laughs> um, I wish like. You know, I wish when I put out a book, I had put, yeah, like a musical interlude in the book. Mm-hmm. But try to do it with the little quotes and stuff. But yeah, all the quotes were excellent. Thank you. Um, those are like that helped me structure. Those are things that helped me. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. So 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 um so should I keep going here? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I just want, I really do want you to tell me about the Joseph Smith thing. So <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't want you to forget. So should you tell me now? Or will you yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. So <laughs> I was at Thanksgiving, right? 
And well, I guess I should explain. A lot of my listeners know because I mention it somewhat regularly that, uh, you know, I was raised Mormon and I even went on a mission. So I was a missionary, classic white shirt and tie, dork, oh, run, know. you know, walking around. Aww. Things of this nature. <laughs> yeah. So if nothing else, it I guess it helped me be able to speak at length on things I may or may not know about. <laughs> um, but so anyway, like if you, I'm saying for the listeners, like if you have the fortune or misfortune to speak to missionaries at any length and, you know, whether you know it or not, they might go into trying to teach about the church or whatever. And so there's a classic bit that they do where, well, I say bit, it's not like a comedic <laughs> bit. It's sort of a routine that most missionaries do because, you know, the whole backstory, Joseph Smith, golden plates, you know, various okay. visions and so forth. So there's this incident called the first vision, which is supposedly where Joseph Smith saw God, the father and the son, Jesus Christ out in the woods. And this is an and this mm -hmm. is in Elmira, New York, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, there's like, it's like a paragraph where like you, some, depending on your inclination, you might do it almost dramatically, but like you'll recite it. And the theory is that people should feel something and be moved to be like, I do want to learn more about the church, you know, like in the best case scenario, that's what it's supposed to do. But Anyway, the point is, I was at Thanksgiving dinner, and I was explaining the different, you know, aspects of the Timothy McVeigh thing. Oh, my God. And I will say, by the way, that my family members were not exactly unenthused. They were interested, and they were like, wow, that's crazy. But long story short, you know, my wife mentioned, like, hey, like, you're kind of doing that like you were a missionary or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then it's can even i tell funny. you about tim mcveigh yeah exactly <laughs> could i interest you in the good word of... <laughs> and it's also interesting too because like with the first vision you know there's actually multiple versions and they don't always align in all the facts and <laughs> it's interesting too because it's like with timothy mcveigh you know i was telling my family oh there's the lone wolf there's the experimental wolf you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know, in that regard, too, it's a little bit like that with, like, different versions of the same event and so forth. <laughs> oh, wow. It's like an Errol Morrow site, like the milkshake scene, and it can be mm -hmm. live. Yeah, except for it's Joseph Smith and Tim McVeigh. <laughs> so, yeah, um, <laughs> that's what I was doing on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I was, that was so funny. Um, yeah, I told you once. I went to see the Hokomora pageant with like, <laughs> friends because it's just, I guess, I don't know. It, I, I guess. It's so kooky. Are, that one in not, Yeah, they're like, you got to go see this. So we, you know, we all went over. It's not that far. And uh, and then, and like everything, you know, it was very silent. And, but I'm, I don't know what was going on in my head. I'm just like scatterbrained. And I don't know if I forgot to turn off my phone. Something happened and I like pulled something out of my bag and dropped it and then loudly said, oh shit. But this is like, <laughs> a, like it was complete silence and there's hundreds and hundreds of people. And like, 
friends are like, Wendy, shut up. <laughs> and then, and so I was like, oh my God, the Mormons are going to get, they're going to hate me now. And then <laughs> there was a flying Jesus, which I, that was, that's the one thing that stood out of this whole production was this like amazing Jesus that flew across the, <laughs> the thing. Yeah. And if I was going to do like Hill Kimura boat with Tim McVeigh, I guess you'd have like Roger Moore flying through the air or I don't know. <laughs> not not that they're the same. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to offend anyone. It's okay. Just... Um, but they don't go into the conflicting stories, obviously, in the in the pageant. So no, at just like with the lone wolf as the accepted narrative, <laughs> no, people yeah. don't exactly yes. want to talk about the conflicting stories. The, yeah, the institutional, yeah, canon, the institutionalized story. Mm-hmm. or something the official story okay all right thank you because i was <laughs> really like i thought it was really great but i didn't quite understand like how he someone would be talking how <laughs> would someone be talking about this book with their family <laughs> <laughs> um okay so yeah okay now now we can continue is that okay yep okay okay all right thank you though um (laughs) i love that so on the topic of roger moore and this is something i haven't talked about yet uh, and stay with me here um and this is something else what i'm about to tell you is something that i go into in book two and uh and it concerns a network of weapons manufacturers and international arms dealers all coming out of the arizona nevada utah region who Roger Moore was involved with, but that also bumps up against the Kingman Oliphant situation, which we'll get into a little bit later. But uh, before Aberration went to print, I was like, yeah, before Aberration went to print, but I had already given the, the book over. And as I said, and I was like hot on the trail of Moore and Oliphant at this time because as soon as I handed the manuscript of aberration over, I knew immediately, like, now I'm going after more and Oliphant because that's like all I wanted in my heart. That's oh, how yeah. those were being led. And so, so at that point, um, I, and then I knew, like, I'm going to write a second book and it's going to be about these, these guys and, and some more stuff, or these guys are going to be central because there's, there's other things in it, but, but they were going to have to be like the two main pillars. But, uh, while publicly available yet obscure records um, gave me my initial leads on Moore and Oliphant, and while I've been able to verify or in some cases at least contextually support what I'm about to tell you, it's, it is this more boots on the ground stuff that's pretty interesting. And at least it's kind of fun, but <laughs> um, perhaps convoluted, but fun. Groundbreaking stuff. This is exclusive. Oh. Amazing. <laughs> oh, almost literally groundbreaking. Almost. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, this is much easier to do in writing when I have the time to like fix my wordings of things. But here I go. Um, before I start, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of characters. And um, this these characters are this little cadre or nexus I've been 
and actually continue to explore like I'm not done with these I'm not done with this yet like my next when I fund it uh, I'll be going back out west but uh international arms dealer spook types um either directly working with directly or very friendly assets of the CIA. So the players, the first of these international arms dealer associates of more and Oliphant, but we're, but anyways, um, the first of them is we're going to, his name is Barry and I'm going to use last names because all these people are dead. I'm going to use last names in the book, but for now, I don't want to like shoot myself in the foot and prevent mm -hmm. any leads, but uh, we're talking about a guy named Barry. Barry not only manufactured a wide array of weapons, um, including Sten machine guns, but he also ran guns up and down the West Coast. He also sold something called weapons parts kits, which were like illegal weapons, but as long as you had them in different parts and assembled yourself, you could legally sell the kits. Mm -hmm. So, so Barry sold those and at least some of those weapons parts kits are the ones that mcveigh ends up selling at the soldier of fortune convention and other gun shows um and so it was and and in aberration weapons parts kits um i talk about that in the in the section of the book from december 94 to february 95 depending on what version you have the page number might be different but when i so barry is at least selling McVeigh, some of these weapons parts kits that McVeigh ends up selling. And, oh, by the way, Barry was tight with the LeBaron clan, including Ross LeBaron. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know these guys? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've heard of them. I don't know if you heard, Wendy, or I forget if I even told you, but no, I think I might have, that I met a LeBaron once. Yeah. I, actually, I want to ask you about that if you, <laughs> if you take it out like i want to know about that yeah about yeah what, you know, yeah <laughs> well basically i was a missionary so i was just you know doing the classic thing of just knocking doors at, you know trying to just meet people and so forth and this guy he's, he sees us <laughs> answers the door he looks weird <laughs> i can't even really remember his face but he like he's like yeah come on in and we're like oh cool we're thinking like this guy already knows who we are you know is he either a member of the church or has he talked to the missionaries before or you know often people just know who we are anyway so we go in and we're talking to this guy and he's in some apartment and it's clearly like a you know he, he's not living there long term type of situation right and he's just a really weird dude and we're like oh how you doing? You talked to the missionaries before? You know, that whole song and dance. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about the missionaries. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I'm actually I'm a, I'm actually a LeBaron. And like oh, shit. my companion, right? He was like from like Mexico. So he didn't know it. I mean, he, they're in Mexico, but like he didn't know what that was. And I was kind of like, oh, shit. <laughs> you did. <laughs> we, we should probably get out of here, man. <laughs> But then, we, yeah. you know, you, you have to, like, you can't just, like, run away. So, like, you know, we're talking or whatever. Yeah. And, like, all, and that, so I'm like, okay, this is, like, a polygamous, basically. Whether or not he is one, like, he's of the polygamous family or whatever. And so we're talking and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be like, you ever go to church? 
And he's like, hey, you ever been to Manta, Utah? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, have you ever seen the mummies? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he's like, there are giant mummies in Manta, Utah. And I'm like, oh, what? really, man? <laughs> and so he starts trying to tell me about basically Nephilim mummies. And I'm just like, listen, I got work to do. We got to get going, man. <laughs> Oh my god. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> like, if you had to do it over again, would you stay and listen to him talk about the Nephilim? Oh, now? totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was interested to hear it at the time, so we didn't run away, but like, I yeah. also was like, I can't, we can't hang out with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's a, amazing and actually squares with what uh, some other things mm -hmm. I've been told. You're such freaking weirdos. Yeah, LeBaron. So, like, yeah, the, well, this guy, Ross LeBaron, who is pretty high up in the LeBaron clan, he impregnated his own daughter, uh, which is great. And uh, so, like, we're talking Church of the Firstborn type stuff, and it gets really weird. Incest, slavery, murder, more mm -hmm. murder. Um, but also gets into some weird UFO, like, cult type stuff. Um, and the links to that theology to some christian identity groups but that's something i'm still trying to get as i explain like yeah and i still need to send you those <laughs> book uh recommendations for a couple of that angle for sure oh my god please, please i'm writing do. down to remember to do that even though having met you and like a couple other people on twitter like i'm having i'm I'm getting in trouble with all these books, but um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, I am reading the Colony right now. It's um, I'm not too far into it, but I, I'm I'm very much enjoying it. I'm in the I'm in the Mountain Meadows section actually right now. Yeah, uh, which I I told you like I went. Someone took me out there when I was in Utah and like mm. took me to the site, and it was and it was night, and it was a September 11th, which was like when. Dang thing yeah it was really eerie and he was trying to tell me the story you know but um and saying that the church was trying to cover it up and all this stuff and it was just really yeah. really interesting and 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 uh, eerie eerie to be there like at dusk and you know it's beautiful territory though but uh <laughs> so yeah so so this guy barry internet who manufactures like um wide array of weapons provides some weapons parts kits to mcveigh also part of the he's like tight with the lebaron clan like he's in that polygamous of i don't know milieu um now barry mm -hmm. has an associate associate named bill bill is also he is an international arms dealer <laughs> what like Bill also has many dealings with David Koresh, like regularly Jeez. dealings with like supplying weapons to Koresh. I mean, like, I think was probably in this case, you know, just kind of standard run of the mill. It's not like he's giving David Koresh whatever insane hardware. He's it's guns, but uh but it's David Koresh. Yeah, because didn't David Koresh like sell weapons? in texas or something yeah that was like a side business or something yeah yeah so he would have been like 
yeah, it would have just been like, oh, hey, oh, you're another gun dealer. Yeah, I mean, that's how I imagine it. Obviously, it wasn't there, but mm-hmm. but but Bill did have a working relationship with Perez, <laughs> um, which is just a, a side note, especially when we start to look more at Bill. And Bill, and this is a quote from somebody who knew Bill. Bill, quote, worked with the CIA and was making massive moves for CIA in his capacity as an exotic weapons designer, weapons slash designer slash manufacturer. He made briefcases made of plastic with Uzis inside of them. The briefcases (laughs) could pull metal detectors. Like he was into some really exotic, like, you know, like almost James Bond type sounding stuff. Real quick, I wanted to ask, and yeah. we can cut this or not, but uh, is there any overlap with that Mitch Warbill the third guy? Oh my gosh! Okay, I should I should have pulled up my notes on that, but um, there's something going on there. Yes, that was something I started to develop, but it's been about four years since I like since I I, I just like hit this wall and I became I went I spun out into farther out of the case than I could so I'm like I'll circle back around and I just haven't there is mm-hmm. connections with these paramilitary guys in that world Warbell guy though there is yeah. I have to it needs to be fleshed out more um because I'm doing soon I'm doing an episode on Warbell but like you know how it is like there's just not that many sources on this guy no um I you know what let me make a note to, because when I still had access to uh, academic databases, I pulled everything I could news-wise on him. Yeah, so let me make a note to find that and send you over. There might be a couple interesting things in there. Yeah, because it, if I remember correctly, it's, yeah, it bumps up against the CIA as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm standing for a bell, so... Um, that's the only reason I think right now I would even consider teaching at a college again is just to get that. <laughs> you start Seriously. teaching just any class and then you're just like <laughs> hidden the databases. So, so yeah, Burbo. Um, I would say it does, except for I'm not able to off the top of my head, like flesh it all out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a connection and it's one that I had started to look at and then be over kind of overwhelmed uh, because it, it also then starts to get into more again the anti-castro people yeah he almost strikes me as like possibly you know as as much of something as roger moore was or something but yeah 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 i remember having that sense about him um mm-hmm. also isn't he he's like is he like in georgia at some point or the yeah correct yeah that, so like Roger Moore has a lot of associates there, and in fact, in that you know, in that uh, southern region, that's where civil material. Well, they're in Alabama, but um, that's where the CMA was operating. Who Roger Moore is a paymaster for. So there's just Hmm. again, this is like a network. It's people might think like, oh, well, what are the odds? But the odds are probably pretty high because it's a small network. Yeah, someone, I I forget which quote or who said it, but, like, someone said that, like, all the operators just, they all know each other. It's not that big a world. 
Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's like, I'm gonna, that's like one of the points I'm gonna make. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said that. It's not, in, it's not at all inconceivable. Like these people know each other through various functions and like dealings and they've been doing these things for so long that yeah, they just fucking know each other. Um, man, they're, maybe they're not like at each other's houses eating dinner, but mm-hmm. they know each other. So, so right, Bill's building, Bill's working with the CIA, making massive moves in his capacity as an exotic weapons designer, manufacturer, making these um, weird things, including briefcases <laughs> made of plastic with Uzis inside of them. <laughs> um, which sounds sound funny. It sounds great, but um, just just as a, I mean, who does that? <laughs> Bill has this huge warehouse in that tri-state area I mentioned. Huge warehouse, just packed with like some heavy stuff. And one time, Bill literally lends this Nazi skinhead, like in his early twenties, uh lets him borrow an armored personnel carrier which <laughs> i don't know what, what what he did with it but like that was like mentioned to me in passing like oh yeah and then he lent blah 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 lent x of armored personnel carrier <laughs> and i'm just imagining like uh, some kind of skinhead like ro- rolling down the desert with <laughs> armored- <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know um bill sold so this is like ratcheted up a little. Bill sold an execute surfaced air missile to the Argentinians during the Falklands War, which hit a British ship. Bill oh, was geez. investigated for this, but nothing came of it. Like that's the kind of heavy stuff we're talking about. Like it's not just a handgun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Serious weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big big time. An execute. I just have an execute surface to air missile you want to buy it <laughs> bill bill had developed and sold some very exotic ammunition including these rounds that were like this is the way it's described they were like ice and they would disintegrate and Ooh, this is funny like classic like agatha christie style like Shit. yeah cia weapon <laughs> yeah it, this is like this is like james bond type and and that Though that ammunition is funny because in October 1993, and the person that was is like explaining these things to me and then I'm verifying them, they don't know what like I know this other set of information. But but why I thought it was funny is because in October 93, someone calls the police in Taliqua, Oklahoma. I don't know if I'm saying that right, and reports that they'd been driving and had their windows shot out randomly. And the investigating officer determined, A, that it was Roger Moore that did the shooting, and B, (laughs) that he used a tracer bullet that disintegrated. Mm. And so, and that's like in an official report. uh, So like, I'm going to speculate that Roger Moore may have gotten that that from Bill, who um, designed these things. So, okay, so now we talked about Barry, and we talked about Barry, you know, Barry the polygamist, Bill the executive guy. Oh, wait, Wendy, yeah, real yeah. quick. So yeah. was yeah, yeah. so was Barry actually a polygamist himself? Okay, I can't, I guess like, 
can't say that for sure other than he was yeah he was part of he was part of the church yeah he was part of the church of the firstborn so i imagine he had to have been but i don't know a lot about harry's family i i know their names but i didn't i only saw like i believe i only saw one wife in the obituary because <laughs> i know that like there are there is a limited number of people in those churches who are not actually doing polygamy. Okay. Um, and then also there's all kinds of gray zone where it's, you know, a lot of times it's like kind of like they're keeping it hidden too. Right. So like, cause it's like illegal. So like he could have been, you know, just a member and he also could have been a, like, you know what I'm saying? Like it could yes, be yeah. either one. He doesn't have. He doesn't have to. He's not compelled to do polygamy. Like just interesting, right? It could be that one of the things I would do on a trip out west. Uh, and by the way, we're gonna give people a link if they want to mm-hmm. contribute. But uh, later. But um, you know, one of the things I would do would be to start uh talking to Barry's family and trying. But those are again, those are things. I have to do in person. It's not a matter of picking up a phone call. So listen, are you a polygamist? <laughs> right. Like they, they have to get a sense of me because they think when someone meets me in person, like okay, they quickly determine like I'm not I'm I'm exactly who I say I am and you know, I'm just weird and goofy and like they see it and it's that's important and it conversation flows <laughs> better when they they don't have to be suspicious mm-hmm. because I mean obviously they're never you know it's not like they're gonna tell me everything but I just think I would get do a lot better just showing up rather than yeah calling and being like hey I want to know about your CIA father <laughs> you know um that's a whole other dynamic like like I don't know if we'll talk about it later but like the, the way I approach things which is also why i don't feel as wise to talk about ongoing things online but uh so anyways bill the ball where am i oh yeah this is gonna bill had a business partner who was more like the face of the business like bill had a business but he had a business partner and bill is more the silent partner and this other guy is the face of the business and there's absolutely documents of uh, that tie tie this business partner to more um but from what i can see bill is the one doing the heavy list lifting so i don't even know if that's important to mention i don't think he comes up again but much like roger moore various agencies investigations into all three men's um infractions of the law often involve heavy weaponry and end up time and again being just dropped so these are this is a cia I, I mean whether it's officially cia or it's you know just a a friendly you know relationship it's cia mm-hmm. or or something else it could also you know who knows what other agencies do, I don't know, defense intelligence who, there there's some like what do you shadowy shadowy uh official Mm. oh god why can't i talk it's shadowy okay and it's official yeah no i mean i think we mentioned it the last time too right 
like international arms dealers, right? They're always like bumping up against the what they're allowed to do, and they're frequently stepping on people's toes. Like that guy selling weapons mm-hmm. to the Argentines that piss off the British, but like. The point is that, like, frequently they'll get right up to the edge, and then maybe they'll get burned. Maybe they'll get about to be burned, but something gets dropped, you know. But, like, basically they're operating in this field where basically, like, they are always (laughs) pushing it to the limit. That's sort of, like, what you have to do to be a successful international arms dealer, I think. Yes, yes. That's that's exactly it. And it's it's so intriguing. It's... Um, and anyone listening to this, you you want to like suggest any books on on that topic of international arms merchants, especially sixties, seventies, eighties, even up to the nineties. I would be highly just throw those titles at me. Um, I've got the Arms Bazaar, and in fact, that's the, the is that title. The, is that the Samson book? I believe so. Let me. Who was oh, that? Look at that! I, I nailed it. <laughs> I haven't read it, but I have that one. But I I. It's not gonna come up. But there's not, I haven't found too many more. It is Samson. Okay. Um, and I need to pick that up. Why isn't this coming up on Amazon? Well, whatever. But you know the you you know the book I'm talking about. But uh mm-hmm. I definitely throw any anyone that has any, and I know some of the Twitter people will have <laughs> probably a ton of recommendations. Um, I really want to get a handle on this network you know even just for my own understanding um mm-hmm. so these guys and, and that's exactly it they they get like yeah they push it right up to the limit they get burned but they they end up walking usually you know these these guys and more do at least um so it's exactly what you said they knew more they also knew Oliphant. And by the way, people tend to think these two characters are on different ends of the story more in Oliphant, but there is connections, <laughs> and this is one of them. And that's like what Boltzmann and I were talking about this morning. And that's part I think he's excited to hear because I've been like, just wait, I'll talk about it when after program to chill. But I, um, and but beyond that, it's not that they just knew more and they knew oliphant i now have some stuff to show that more had dealings with oliphant but uh moving on i introduced so all of that to say these are some 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 players in the story i'm about to tell you but (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh okay i okay in about 2011 when i was working on a documentary about okc um the importance of what i call the west coast angle which is this Arizona, Nevada, Utah deal situation. Um, I didn't quite understand all the moving pieces yet, uh, nor do I now probably. But at the time, I was the whole thing was just coming into focus. And honestly, the West Coast angle is so different and involves an entire almost other universe of people than the Elohim City ARA nexus, which is a valid area of inquiry. But this is the thing that kept calling my heart that was like, oh, I can't let it go. Um, <laughs> and at the time, I felt like the Elohim City ARA stuff had been written about to exhaustion. Now I think Boltzmann is one person who's kind of blowing life back into it. Wait, blowing? Breathing life back into it? Um, 
let me so, let me ask you this because I know <laughs> you're you know yeah. next level research right but like for me I feel like I can't force myself to research stuff I'm not interested in like I just have to do the oh, stuff no. that I actually am interested in no absolutely no yeah absolutely like my heart I mean it sounds cheesy but no it's mm-hmm. like where 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 the Lord leads me it's mm-hmm. like where my heart no and I can't even I can't even pretend to to, uh, in that respect I'm really lazy um I just (laughs) yeah but it's a good impulse because then it's like if you're interested someone else will be interested if you're bored doing it then like someone else might be bored reading it right absolutely yeah and if you're especially when you're trying to convey it you're not gonna right it's not going to be conveyed and you're not going to your intuition isn't going to kick in the same way either um mm-hmm. uh yeah so like you know i i my i was very very pulled to now i've been to Elohim city and we can talk about that later but i you know i looked into that but it was like this west coast stuff that i'm like this is new territory and there's something here and there so but in 2011 when i first i went out there and i i was doing preliminary research for this documentary um and i had and i had to talk to i was told i needed to talk to this guy named jay now when the second book comes out i will use his real name i'm this is a fake name but i'm going to call him jay but i don't want uh and he's probably going to die soon so that you know that'll work out but jay had long-standing ties to british and other western foreign intelligence agencies and moved within a network in the united states of cia spooks and he had intimate knowledge of all these arms dealers in the arizona nevada utah region of which there seems to be many um this is a guy who knew Jay. He knew and worked with General William Westmoreland. Mm. Um, if that rings a bell, he was a commander of United States forces during Vietnam War from 64 to 68. Also chief of staff, United States Army, 68 to 72. Um, so, you know, he like knows this guy. Um, who else did Jay know? Jay knew Roger Moore and Jay's <laughs> son. Jay Jr. told me that his mother, Jay's ex-wife, Mrs. Jay, was pretty good friends with Moore as well. So like, so I'm talking, so I'm told for a reason I need to talk to this guy. Again, in 2011, I didn't, I wasn't prepared with the questions I, I really needed. So I didn't have the arsenal of questions I needed. But by, by 2014, 2015, 2016, I had those questions. Like I, I was like all about it. Um, so the first meeting wasn't that fruitful, but in about 2017, I went back and talked to him again. And um, my main objectives were to learn as much as I could about Moore's West Coast Network, specifically that cadre of arms dealers and exotic weapons designers. Um, and by the way, just... I had somebody with me because while I sometimes had to do the hairier stuff alone, it helps to have somebody with you in Mm. um, scary situations, but it takes a certain kind of person. So, uh, (laughs) um, you know, 
you can't you can't show fear and you can't there's a lot of ways you have to handle yourself in these situations I think but so we're talking myself my companion and Jay and we're chatting really about nothing in particular just kind of warming up like oh hey how you been blah 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 I hadn't even asked him what I, some of the things I was there to ask and out of nowhere Jay begins telling us a story about two federal agents who quote went missing but had actually been murdered and buried on or near Jay's or on or near Barry's property, Barry, the, mm. one of these arms dealers. Um, and that property is kind of like right where these three states meet. Um, now, he didn't say what agency these agents came from that were murdered and buried, and he didn't say why. And it was my instinct like to just let him continue and not to, to interrupt, just let him talk. So Snoop Dogg says, back to the lecture at hand, according to Jay, Barry <laughs> hadn't killed the agents. That was a member of the Aryan Nations who was serving life in prison for something else. But at the time of these alleged murders, he worked for Barry. So the skinhead or the, the member of Aryan Nations kills these agents, buries them on or near Barry's property. Uh, I have to assume Barry had full knowledge of this. In the course of telling us this story, Spooky Jay mentioned that, oh, by the way, there's a lot of stinger missiles buried out there on Barry's property. And they were buried there about 20 odd years ago, which would have made this like kind of the late 90s. If you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, <laughs> why would Barry have fucking stinger missiles on his property? <laughs> it's a real record scratch moment. <laughs> So here we go. <laughs> well, after dropping this strange claim on me, Sir Spooks a lot, continues his story and starts talking about Bo Greitz, a person who's fairly well known in the Patriot community. It's so hard for me to say the name correctly. Like, I know you did it right. And like, even though I know that's correct, like, I can never Gritz. internally in my head, I always just say Gritz. <laughs> Grits. I mean, I might not be saying it right, but I, I think I think you are because I think I looked it up at one point. But I believe I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard it said Grits. Yeah, but it's not a name I hear uh, verbally often. It's more of one you read. But yeah. he did bring he. I believe he even called it Grits. But uh, yeah. but Grits fairly known in the Patriot movement in the in the 90s and uh long actually suspected of being a spook himself <laughs> so there's all kinds of stuff out there about greats he's easy to look up and he's beyond really the scope of our conversation <laughs> but a couple <laughs> things a few fun facts um and these this all this comes from a few different sources so greats has been described as someone quote at the heart of american military and foreign policy, both overt and covert, from the Bay of Pigs to Vietnam to Afghanistan. Um, and I'm going to say he also brought some chickens home, in a sense, which we're mm. about to see. Greitz commanded a detachment from the 5th Special Forces Group Airborne and later commanded and trained a battalion-sized unit composed mostly of indigenous mercenaries operating in South Vietnam near the Cambodian border. There's a picture of Greitz and his Cambodian mercenaries that he trained and led um, 
fighting the secret war in Laos, which was published in General Westmoreland's memoirs. So there's a picture of Greitz and these mercenaries in Westmoreland's Westmore memoirs. <laughs> in mm -hmm. fact, Westmoreland mentions Greitz in his memoirs. In the 19, in the late 1970s, Francis Ford Coppola asked permission to use the photo of Greitz when making Apocalypse Now. He want, but he wanted to switch Greitz's face out with Marlon Brando's, oh. and the, the army denied him permission to use the photo. Interesting. <laughs> He's going to Photoshop him. Um, so Greitz was the uh, oh crap, what's it, Kurtz? He was. He was. <laughs> I mean, the, obviously the book Heart of Darkness is written way yeah, before yeah. that, but in the film adaptation, yeah, C Coppola had Greitz in mind. Interesting. He, Greitz and others, although I think the claims originate with the Greitz, that he's the true life inspiration for the character Rambo, the film, <laughs> because the book came before, and even the author of the book is like, I don't know who Greitz is, but the, in Wait, the film so he's saying he's the inspiration yes. for the movie, not the book. And, and, and that's like one of the most common claims you'll see is Greitz, the inspiration for Rambo. I mean, didn't he almost act more like the guy that talks down Rambo? I, I need to go back and watch Rambo has been a few years. Yeah, there's almost like a the major character that comes in at the end and talks Rambo down from killing everyone. Um anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I need to go back. I know I know the the a lot of times like a lot of movies will just meld together in my head. I know like but the Rambo character comes from a book. Yeah, yeah. Which was yeah, way before. But the film adaptation like others have said that that's a BS claim. So but yeah. what it looks like is that while he's not the inspiration for the book, he did influence the cinematic depiction to that to an extent. He is also loosely the inspiration for Hannibal and the A-Team um, and some Chuck <laughs> Norris characters. And as you said, Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. So that's right. Interesting. From 1975 to 77, he commanded special forces in Latin America. His spooky CV goes on and on. But what he's probably best known for is his effort starting in the late 70s and continuing into the early 80s is to locate U.S. POWs that some believe were left behind in Southeast Asia after the troops withdrawal from Vietnam, U.S. troops. <laughs> Um, which actually happens to be the plot of Rambo First Blood 2 that comes out in 85. Right. And, uh, I, you know, also that Chuck Norris MIA movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God. The POW MIA thing, which was in super real. It was just a very real phenomenon that was not at all a fake <laughs> psyop. <laughs> uh. um, yeah, Greitz is like actually, I think, the initiator of making missions. Now, that's, you might know this, like, uh, well, he well, at first, that those missions to go retrieve, locate, retrieve, or, you know, the, the POWs, at first it was aided in part by the Defense Intelligence Agency, or at least Greitz missions. I don't know how many there really were, but he was later then... I guess his public funding went kind of was cut off, and then he found funding through private channels to do this, including Ross Perot, but also 
Clint Eastwood and William Shatner also funded these great missions. Um, and I'm like so curious as to what they were really doing because my understanding is that there really wasn't POWs, right? I mean, what were they doing? That's that's right. Well, I say like what Greit's actual mission was there and on whose behalf is debated. And even Greit's himself would later give conflicting answers. Like at one point he actually says there were no POWs. It was, you know, something else I was doing. So mm. that I need to do more on, but or, <laughs> more on. I need to do more work on, but uh, um, oh, and like, at, you know, because it keeps coming up, Greitz joined the LDS church, but got kicked out or not renewed. I don't know how they say it, but excommunicated probably. Yeah. Yeah. Excommunicated. I guess like, he, yeah, there was something, he had some kind of criminal charge. I think it was related to taxes or his family or something, but, and so they, they didn't like that because he was too high profile. So they kick him out, but then he becomes involved with a splinter sect called the Church of Israel, which also is akin to Christian identity, just like Church mm-hmm. of the Firstborn. Um, so Greitz is kind of all over the place here. But <laughs> either way, he ends up becoming big in the late 80s and 90s Patriot movement. He was at Ruby Ridge in 1992. In fact, he's the guy that asked Johnny Banger to mm-hmm. write the letter that convinces Weaver to surrender. So, and Banger did it and Greitz delivered it to Weaver. Now, Greitz had enough pull that he was somehow able to convince the the task force um, that had Weaver under siege to let him do this. So Greitz was the kind of guy that could just walk up and be like, hey, can I, can I approach the target? So if that gives, like, let's say he had pull, not yeah. just among the fringe See, that's where that's what is making me think of the first Rambo movie where like Rambo gets talked down by like some okay. guy who also resembles him. So it's almost like maybe different eras of his career he might have resembled one of the two. Well, of course yeah. that movie came out before he ended up doing that or whatever. And the, the three movies actually or the at least the two could be the third. Um they, yeah, they're all kind of running parallel to the exact stuff that Greitz is doing. That's why I say there. I think yeah. there's truth to this rumor, yeah. but it's not that like he is Rambo. You know, he's, mm-hmm. I mean, if you just compare p- pictures, he's, he's not. It's not Rambo. <laughs> so back back to the story at hand. Why does Barry the arms merchant have stingers on his property, and what does this have to do with Bo Greitz? Well, Jay the Spook tells me that Greitz trained Mujahideen in these here deserts of the United States. Ooh, that it was was Greitz doing it. Interesting. Yes, Greitz did it. Greitz is training the Mujahideen in Sandy Valley, Nevada, uh, which is right outside of Vegas. Um, Part of this involves the use of stinger missiles, but, Jay added, and these are Jay, the spook's words, those, quote, stupid Arabs, unquote, could never figure out how to get the stingers to work properly. So they ended up um, using a lot more red-eye missiles than they used stingers. These red-eyes are smaller and they're easier to, to handle. Um, 
So now I'm being told that Greitz trained Mujahideen in the U.S. desert and that they ended up using red-eye missiles. And therefore, they had a lot of extra stinger missiles when the gig ended. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? Like, oh, I just have, have some, some extra stinger missiles. Um, Jay says when all was said and done, the job of and the job of training the Mujahideen was over. The government came to collect the extra stingers. And Greitz, according to Jay, lies and says, there are no extras. We used them all. But it turns out that later, so like now you can find this on the internet um, and I can send you links or it's, it's just really easy to find. There's video out here. And that was actually something I found not too long ago because I was always like trying to find evidence of the of this uh, Mujahideen stuff in the United States but it, it's all it's it's on YouTube now so um Bright's claims that he helped train actually even Osama bin Laden aka Tim Osmond as well as other Mujahideen <laughs> in the use of stingers and he did so in the United States this is at the time when CIA director William Casey has two pet projects he's trying to sell. The one is supporting Contras and the other is the Mujahideen. That Greitz did this um, has been substantiated now by the 2002 release of footage from late summer of 1986 showing Greitz training Mujahideen in guerrilla tactics and various missiles in Sandy Valley, Nevada. So it's like proven. Hot damn. Yeah, right. And like, I think before we had talked about like, that's a whole other thing. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to just get a handle on on Moore's people. And now like, it's like, now there's Mujahideen, you know, in Nevada, being trained. And why oh, haven't yeah. we heard about that? Like in all the books? Why haven't I seen that before? I, it's a retort, you don't have to answer. But like, why? No, I mean, no, it's it, like, really though like why <laughs> um there was a period of time when i was very 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 interested in in the mujahideen and like never once back then did i ever come across something like this um but now it, it is out there it's just you have to like dig and look um and for what it's worth, Greitz claims that his endeavor to do this was <laughs> initiated by the National Security Council under the direction of a State Department official and that the funding was channeled through Stanford Technology, the CIA front company. Interesting. That's what Greitz claims. So, uh, yeah. So he claims that and we know for a fact that he was doing it. So yes. Right. Chances are the he wouldn't probably lie about the funding, given that we know for a fact that he did it, period. Yes. And it may be uh-huh. it's a case of that like, he got burned and like now wants to talk about it because fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um and f- Fun fact, Rambo 3, right, Rambo 3, 1986, is set in Afghanistan. And what does Rambo do? He takes on almost and almost single-handedly defeats the entire Soviet <laughs> army. <laughs> yeah. So, so Rambo. So, okay, so what? So who cares? So you could say, whatever, Wendy, this guy is just like this J guy. The spook is just telling you stuff that's already been floating around, but you didn't know it. Except 
uh, remember, the story started because he's telling me there's stinger missiles buried on Barry's property along with bodies. And I'm, okay, I'm going back. I'm going to get back to the stinger missiles in one second. But when Jay tells me this, like, my jaw hits the floor. I mean, not literally. I was probably clenching, gnashing my teeth. Um, because, you see, I had been told by more than one person by this point that Jack Oliphant himself also had continuously made claims that he trained the Mujahideen in the deserts of the United States uh, in the same three-state nexus, or, you know. And it wasn't mm -hmm. like Jack Oliphant claimed this one or two times. He claimed it a lot, just like the JFK stuff we talked about and the Hoffa <laughs> stuff, or actually that we're going to talk about. <laughs> in the Yeah, but, but I'm getting ahead. He claimed it a lot. And I didn't bring this up to Jay and but it was something that I also had been chipping away at, just like, oh, that's an interesting rumor. And now I was like, now this is a super interesting rumor. So, so anyways, so Greitz had some extra stingers. And uh, back when these stingers were circulating in the early 1990s, like they end up circulating amongst the kind of the underground. An ATF informant had infiltrated this one little racial, racial militia group. Um, and it was kind of like a bunch of young, you know, early, late teen, early 20 something dumb guys dressing up, marching around, shooting guns, drinking, smoking weed, talking a lot, especially a lot about racial purity. They also happened to know Barry the arms merchant and some of his associates pretty well because it's a small world and everyone likes weapons. Who doesn't? Yeah, <laughs> hardly anyone I meet in, in this research doesn't. Um, <laughs> I and I'm not, you know, I I have nothing to say. I don't I don't own a gun, but I I don't have a big problem with them either. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I mean, you know, look if if governments can have them, it's uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get. In, I don't have like a big ideology about it or anything. I just mm -hmm. not that worried about guns. Um, more worried about those these networks of people. But uh, <laughs> so after all kinds of like obvious, very very obvious cajoling, an ATF informant that had infiltrated this little skinhead group starts pushing and pushing really hard like continuously the idea of hey guys let's get some stingers hey you know where i can get any stingers um and because of that like they started to get very suspicious of him because it was just that obvious um you know hey oh how can we get some stingers oh no maybe how about tomorrow can we get how about after church on sunday can we get some stingers then like just <laughs> ridiculous so at that point they're like oh shit they're coming after the stingers and word gets back to barry that this dude won't stop talking about stingers so barry retrieves the stingers apparently from greitz i'm not sure if greitz had uh transferred them to somebody but barry gets them and buries them on his property and that was that according to spooky jay now after jay tells us about the stinger stuff my traveling companion and i go back and we talk to a former member of this a reformed member of this old militia group um that had been infiltrated and we're just kind of sitting around hanging out with this guy and his wife 
And they go on to confirm that, yep, back in the day, there was a lot of talk about stinger missiles, especially from these people, which would be like Barry and Barry's uh, business partners. So I don't know if any of this is making sense, but uh, it is a small and weird world so that they know each other isn't odd. And at some point in 1993, after the threat of the let's get the stinger guys had passed, like the informant must have went on to other people. Barry's passing through and shows up at the house um, of this source of mine who and he shows up with like crates of stinger missiles and it wasn't like three or four crates he's saying there was enough crates of stinger missiles to fill this room and we're sitting in a living room and the wife that was there my source's wife's confirming this like oh my god i remember she's like rolling her eyes like you guys stop bringing stinger missiles into the house (laughs) i don't know where barry went like he he wasn't dropping them off to this person i'm talking to at least from what i'm told he was like on his way somewhere but he was kind of like hey check this out look what i got so (laughs) um now this person i'm talking to says you know what actually there's stinger missiles laying all like spent stinger missiles laying all over Barry's property now and this is like a few years ago I'm being told this um he says there's also still stinger missiles buried on Barry's property um and a bunch of highly other interesting stuff like I'm thinking who just leaves their stinger missiles out but like if you saw this property which I did there's I can send you pictures. It's insane. There's like so much garbage and shit heaped all over the place. Like it actually is the best (laughs) place to hide your stinger missiles probably. Um, And we're like, hmm, this is weird. So uh, how does he know there's stinger missiles still all over Barry's property? It's because he he works construction and he had passed there somewhat recently and stopped on the property which is really hard to get to, by the way, but, and he saw all this military ordinance laying around because Barry at this point is dead. Um, so he was just driving by and stopped for old time's sake, I guess. So anyways, he de- he described some other interesting things he saw while he was out there. But uh, as you can imagine, the first thing in the morning, I'm like, we have to get, we're going to Barry's. We have to go. Like, I'm kind of a dictator in, in, you know, on the field. Like, I, I just know where my heart wants to go and I'm going. So we, we're like, we're going there. So the next morning we go there and it is out there. It is basically Warren Jeff's territory. It's mm. really weird. Um, I watched documentaries about Jeff's church and it's like right in that neighborhood. And it's so remote. It's not even on the grid at all. Like this, it's not on the grid. Um, and if so, we get to Barry's property. There's junk all over the place. It's it's kind of creepy as fuck too. Like I just, I'm not. I'm an intuitive person. I try to be rational and logical in my research and writing. On the other hand, when I'm investigating something, there's a large there's a large intuition of something that like I'm led by. Yeah. Um, and and like and and I'm standing on Barry's property and it's creepy as fuck. It's like I can feel I can feel the negative like mojo or whatever. I, the vibes. In there. Yeah, I can feel it. Yeah. I was scared. Um and then it was getting dark. And so like we didn't have we, first of all, we didn't have fucking shovels and we didn't want to like 
get arrested. But <laughs> we did walk all over the property and dun, 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 we found a red eye missile casing. Mm. So we didn't find a stinger, but we found red eye, which is squares. And and it wasn't, I just want to be really clear um, for anyone listening that I it is not a live red eye, it was spent. So, you know, yeah, it was just sure. but it had like, you know, it was stamped, like, you know, US Army, like it was official. There was other stuff like that was hard to identify out there that was really I don't know. I, I need to go back there. Who now who knows? I'm gonna talk about this and I'll go back there and it's gonna be all cleaned up. But uh <laughs> I did take pictures. And later when we talked about the crying a lot for you and I and how this like influenced me, like some strange things happened, including on that property that all I can think of is it felt like the crying of lot 49. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess I'll get back to that at the end when we talk about less serious stuff, um, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll go on. Um, so I didn't just tell you all this stuff just for fun. There's a bigger <laughs> point, uh, at least for me. Um, stinger missiles are also a major part of PATCON. And in this exact same time period that these missiles, stinger missiles are circulating and being buried, this is a big part of PATCON. Um, I'll go into it more in book two, but I, in book two, I trace the history and circulation in an attempt to rein in supposedly missing Stinger missiles, and to a lesser extent, red-eye missiles, as told by various news, government, and whatever other public documentation where, of which there is lots. I compare and overlay it the stories I'm being told um, in the field, um, and then I also overlay it with PATCON information. And then I overlay it with Roger Moore. And then this other story starts to like come into focus. Um, but it, the stinger stuff makes Roger Moore get a lot more interesting. Basically, these stingers are all over South Florida where Moore lives half the year as early as 1989. And from there, they're making their way across the country. In 1991, a Department of Defense Inspector General study audited Stinger, Dragon, and Red Eye inventories and found (laughs) that um, paper, quote, paperwork problems made it impossible to account for 188 Stinger missiles. Um, but then in 1994, the Pentagon comes out and says, actually, that's not correct. They were never missing. We we just have, we're trying to fix our bookkeeping. So like they tried to rein that in, but that's not the only time this comes up. It comes up a lot. There, there are clearly Stinger missiles all over the place. <laughs> a Stinger missile behind every bush. PatCon, by that name anyways, began in early in, I'm sorry, in April 1991. And with each extension and renewal of PatCon, the fourth time being in August 92, Ruby Ridge time, PatCon's mission gets broader and broader, as does its geographical reach. But right from the get-go, PatCon had one very specific feature, which was ostensibly the recovery of Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. 
um, specifically those that may be in the possession of the civilian military assistants in Alabama who aided the Contras, whose paymaster is Roger Moore, um, and the conduit through which the CIA provides them support. But that's so that's how that kind of all that part ties in. Um, I believe, though, that the PatCon, I personally believe right now, and if I have different information, it could change my belief, but that the justification of we have to go get these Stinger missiles is is just that. It's just a justification. It, it's to me clear that the Find the Stinger game not only included many other targets beyond civilian military assistance, um, but it, I believe that it's more like so let's circulate the Stinger game or transfer the Stingers into the hands of X game. Um, mm. If that makes sense, like sort of a more complicated game than just recovering them, right? Because if it was about recovering them, the focus would be broader than the civilian military assistance. And and while it is, it seems that their Khan is constantly worried about Stinger missiles in the hands of the, the civilian military assistance. But then why not look at their friend Roger Moore, like, or like, there's more to this than their PatCon is about recovering these Stinger missiles. I, I feel, I believe, right now. Interesting. Um, at least one person who wrote one of the first mainstream media articles about PatCon claimed that, quote, the FBI's documents and several interviews with people with direct knowledge of the events offer no clear evidence that the stingers had been real. That's, and that's what this guy was writing. And it's probably legitimate. Like he probably had nothing to know that the stingers were real, but they were real. Not only has that been confirmed to me by three different individual sources um, that, but also Roger Charles, who's now deceased, and the conversation I had with him in July of 2012 told me that uh, Pat, Common, Pat Con informant by the name of John Matthews also saw the Stinger missiles and has confirmed that the Stingers are real. And uh, Matthews, by the way, is operating also at times up and down the West Coast. Okay, so that also applies to, well, my belief that the PatCon justification for the stingers is, is just that, is a justification to have something on paper to do, you know, create, to conduct a, I don't know, deeper, wider mission. Um, I believe that's mm -hmm. also the case with the theft and sale of military equipment and C4 explosives, which more is balls deep in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, and let's see. Moore himself claimed that he, Moore, was an FBI informant, but obviously by the looks of things, he was a damn sure a lot more than that. And also by that same look of things, PatCon itself wasn't an investigative effort with the goal of arrest and prosecution. I hate to say it, kinda, but it's looking like PatCon was an inciting operation. 
mm. and perhaps the very vehicle through which these stingers and red eye and other military hardware were circulated. Um, so there you go. That's one of the things I do in book two. Might be overly ambitious, but that's where I'm going. No, that's remarkable because like in the first book, and I say for the listeners who haven't read it, PatCon is probably one of the most interesting parts of the entire book. And you definitely are left wanting more PatCon. And like, so knowing that it is a big part of book two is very exciting. And we're still waiting for, you know, Jesse Trinity has been in a case uh, to against the FBI, but has been under um, basically a gag order for since at least since Aberration came out. So at least 2016, but I believe since 2014 or 15. But once that case concludes, um, I think there's going to be a wellspring of information mm. about PatCom. Um, so let's let's hope because yeah, and so it's funny because like when you you see um, Pat Con like FOIA requests about Pat Con, um, it's all, it'll be like three lines of text, and then the rest of the page is just redacted. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. You have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. Please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy Painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date, as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you. God bless.